Man, what a blessing it is to know that the living God wants us to spend a whole day with him. (laughs) And that he, from the very beginning, you know, even before sin entered the world, he knew that our hearts needed restoration and repair and rest. And, uh, you know, that Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. How especially true it is on the Sabbath day. Uh, Today we are about to get into the Word, and before, excuse me, immediately after that we'll be dismissing to do foot washing and communion. What a special time that is, and before we get to that, I want us just to to really seek the Lord and ask Him to, to speak to us exactly what we need to hear so that throughout this week we can live by His Word. We've been on a journey thus far for the last few weeks. We've been going through a sermon series, Let Him Hear. I believe this is part four, right? Let Him Hear, part four. And the title is Holding Fast or Holding Back. Holding Fast or Holding Back. We're going to go to the book of Revelation, but before we do, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Creator God, we know that you are the one who holds our very breath in your hand. And God, that breath was a gift. (laughs) And so was that one. Lord, in you we move, we live, we have our very existence. And so today, we're not coming demanding. We're coming humbly before your throne of grace. And we ask, God, that you would give us exactly what we need today. We ask that you would prepare our hearts for the foot washing and communion that we'll get to participate in and engage in. We ask that your word would be like a double-edged sword, cutting to the very motives and thoughts of our hearts today. We ask that it would be the living word and not just ink on paper. We ask that it would be the word that sanctifies us. We ask that it would be the word that transforms us. And just as in creation week, when you said, let there be light, and the things of this universe, the very elements and atoms, came into existence at the sound of your word. God, I pray that new life would come into existence in our hearts at the hearing and reading of your word today. Because we need you every hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing that chorus with me? I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. And all God's people said, Amen. Open me, open with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going... To hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've been working through this from Revelation 1 and now into chapter 2. We saw in Revelation 1 a vision of Jesus as a heavenly high priest walking in the midst of the what? Do you remember? The lampstands, right? And these lampstands were a symbol of God's churches. And Jesus isn't far distant from the lampstands. No, he's right there in the midst and he's wanting to make sure that those flames don't flicker out. And as he begins to address and, and, uh, and cultivate each church, and in its individual condition, he speaks specific messages to them, 
in their situations, and we find that their situations speak directly to our situations. These are churches whose conditions reflect our spiritual conditions as well, whether presently or in the past or in the future, and we can find ourselves in their shoes just as well. Amen? And so we've walked through some of these messages thus far. The church of Ephesus was a church that was laboring for Jesus, but not out of love. They had lost their first love. And then the church of Smyrna, this was a church that was persecuted and pressed, but not crushed. And we talked about it last week, that when we have the temptation to fear, we stop fearing, but keep faithing. You remember that? Yeah? How many of you this week found yourself tempted to fear what was lying ahead, but you reminded yourself, wait a minute, there's a God who sees the end from the beginning, and who's going to see me through this. I don't know, maybe some of you thought about that phrase, 10 days, right? (laughs) This too will pass. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and that's what that persecuted church, the church of Smyrna, needed to hear. And now we're going to verse 12, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, and this is to the church of, as the New King James says, the church of Pergamos. Maybe your Bible says Pergamum. All right, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Who is this that's speaking? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Now, what was life like in Pergamos or Pergamum back in the day? Pergamos was a city much like Smyrna, except it was inland. It, was, uh, it wasn't a port city, but it was a wealthy city. It was an important city. It was actually a very intellectually minded city. It boasted of the second largest library, about 200,000 volumes, according to archaeologists. Uh, the second largest library in the then known world. And so it was, it was known for its intellectual life, but it was also a political center. It was of political importance because The capital city of that province, the province of Asia in the Roman Empire, the capital city was right there, Pergamos. Pergamum was the capital city. In fact, it wasn't just known for its political importance, it was actually known for its religious importance, because as we had talked about, there was actually a cult of the emperor, an imperial cult. There had begun in Rome emperor worship, and in fact, Pergamos was the first city to dedicate a temple to the worship of the emperor. So Pergamos was a place in which, yes, there was a great deal of religiosity, but not in the kind of religiosity that Christians were accustomed to, okay? This was the kind of place where, uh, you know, it was actually a dangerous place for Christians because authorities could actually summon Christians and order them to worship the emperor or else, right? Authorities could summon Christians and say, hey, you must uh, worship the emperor and denounce your faith in Christ. And, and if they refused, then death was their threat. If they, de- if they went ahead and renounced and accommodated the, the demands of Rome, they were actually issued a certificate of sorts. All right, you pass, okay? Uh, free on the go, all right? You, you, can, you can go around this corner. And it was a similar situation to that in Smyrna. Remember, Smyrna, they, they experienced persecution. But it seems as though when you read this message, Pergamos experienced this persecution to an even more intense degree. Actually, if you just kind of let your eyes fall down a little bit to verse 13. Notice how Jesus assesses Pergamos. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where whose throne is? Where Satan's throne is. Do you see the intensity of this picture? 
And this is really a recognition. This is just kind of implying the fact that, whoa, the devil has a stronghold here, and it's so much so that it really presses the life out of Christians. So this was a dangerous place for Christians to live. But how does Jesus address this church? How does Jesus address this church that is where Satan's throne is, where the devil himself dwells? Notice again, back in verse 12, how Jesus introduces himself. It says, these things, says he who has what? You see it in verse 12? He who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I want you to notice the significance of this personal description of Jesus, because every time Jesus speaks to the different churches, he addresses himself, or he identifies himself in a different way. And so for this church that is uh, the, the center of imperial cult worship, this, this place where it's demanded of them to, to worship the emperor, he actually identifies himself as the one who holds a double-edged sword. Now, back in that day, the Roman governor, the Roman governor actually had what's called the right of the sword. In other words, they could inflict capital punishment at a moment's notice. And so here's Jesus saying, no, 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 I'm the one. I'm the one with the double-edged sword. So the significance of this is first contrast. Whoa, men may say this, but here's Jesus. He's got the right of the sword. The other thing is confidence. It's not just contrast, but it's also confidence. And Jesus is essentially saying, look, your life is in my hands. Your life is in my hands. It's sustained by my living word, right? That that sharp double-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You can write that one down. Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, Uh, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any, what? Double-edged sword. That's right. So Jesus is saying, look, it's not just mere mortals, but it's me. I'm the one who sustains it. You can have confidence in me and my word, not the sentence of a mere man, but the word of the living God. And so here's Jesus. I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 13, he begins to assess their situation. He says, I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Again, similar to to the persecution that Smyrna had been facing. And, And to some degree, the church in Pergamos had exhibited faithfulness and loyalty. Notice verse 13. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So as we're looking at this church in Pergamos, they are a church that holds fast. Amen. They are a church that even though they dwell where all this chaotic stuff is happening, even though they dwell where Satan's throne is, they hold fast. And hold fast to what is it? Specifically in verse 13, what do they hold fast to? Did you catch it? They hold fast to the name of Jesus. Now this is actually, when you understand the situation, this is really, this means a lot. Because when, you know, people were brought in, when Christians were brought in to to denounce their faith in Christ and instead, you know, worship the emperor, they were actually demanded, say, to say, Caesar is Lord. That was the requirement. You must say, Caesar is Lord. But have you noticed that when John writes, like, say, in 1 John, and he talks about, hey, no one can say that Jesus is Lord unless he has the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed those verses? Jesus is Lord was a direct counter to emperor worship directly and so when christians were brought in to say caesar is lord they did not deny 
Jesus. Instead, they held fast to his name, which means they said, Jesus is Lord. Wow. They must obey God rather than men. So they were faithful. They held fast. At least some of them did. Notice the rest of the verse, excuse me, in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. It gets even more specific. Verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Whoa. So here is a church that is a mixed bag. Here's a church that holds fast to the name of Jesus, but there are some who hold to other things. What are those other things that they're holding to? According to verse 14, there are some who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Do you remember the story of Balaam? Balaam was an Old Testament figure. You can write this down, Numbers 22 through 25. Numbers chapter 22 through 25. You can read that later on this afternoon. Balaam was brought in um, by the king of Moab because the king of Moab saw the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, heading towards his direction, and the king of Moab knew, hey, whoa, 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 the children of Israel, they've been taking people out left and right. (laughs) God has actually defended them. And the king of Moab senses the threat, and so he calls upon Balaam and says, would you please curse these people? Do you remember what Balaam tried to do? Balaam tried to curse them, but could he, yes or no? No, his words couldn't put out the curses. He stood upon the hilltops and said, instead he said blessings upon them. The Spirit of of God took over him and, and, and proclaimed prophecies of blessings over the chosen people. And he tried in different locations, and Balak, the king of Moab, said, hey, wait, you just blessed them. I wanted you to curse them. Hey, let's try it over here. Let's try it over here. Let's try it over a few times over. You read the story. And because he failed to be able to proclaim curses over them, Balaam instead instructed Balak, the king of Moab, to seduce the children of Israel into unfaithfulness toward God through idolatry and sexual immorality and thus be deserving of the curses of God. Wow! He worked through these uh, side routes, so to speak, to misdirect the attention of God's people, and as a result, the curses of God were upon them. And so here's this church in Pergamos. There are people who hold fast to the name of Jesus, even at the threat of death, but then there are some who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. In other words, there are some who go the route of compromise rather than conviction. Here is a church that has compromised their convictions. It's a house divided, the divided heart that cannot stand, because when we're not holding fast to Jesus with both hands, we're actually holding back from Jesus what he really deserves. So the message this morning of Pergamos is let him hear part four, holding fast or holding back. Are we giving God our complete loyalty today? Do we know what it's like to compromise? Do we know what it's like to compromise our convictions for the sake of convenience? And here is where Pergamos speaks directly to our living reality. Do we hold fast to Jesus, or do we hold fast with just one hand? (laughs) 
while our other hand is holding to other things. And what is Jesus' prescription? If you keep reading, what is Jesus' prescription for this compromising condition? This condition in which we, yes, we have one foot in and one foot out. This condition where we hold fast in one way, but we really hold back in other ways. What is Jesus' prescription? Notice it, Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. The Bible says, repent. One simple command, repent. And it's a simple instruction to sorrow over your condition. Sorrow over it so much that you are willing to decide to make a U-turn and go the other direction. If what we're repenting from is holding to two different things, if we're repenting from compromise, then God wants us to repent and turn to consecration. He wants us to be wholehearted for him. Verse 16 says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is serious business. <laughs> because, again, given Pergamus' situation, it may have seemed a convenient thing to compromise so that they would avoid the right of the sword, right? The governor's sword. It may have seemed a convenient way to escape the governor's sword, but it's still deserving of the double-edged sword of Christ our King. The truth is that when we give the devil an inch, we end up giving a mile. Do you know the truth of that? That when we think, oh, this may not be such a big deal. How many of you have ever let that thought cross your mind? It's not really that big of a deal. You know, I know the Bible says this, but maybe this one time, you know? Maybe this one time. Or, you know, God wants wants to forgive me. He'll forgive me later. These are dangerous trains of thoughts, friends. Or maybe you've thought like this, doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? No, <laughs> no I don't know, maybe we don't need to go this direction because this is, this is something that, that maybe we hear all too often. We're, we're kind of, we're, we're convicted about a certain direction we should go, but we feel the need to compromise for the sake of convenience. And we say, no, 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 but, but if I keep going in this direction of conviction, then then I'm just not even going to be happy through this. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? Boy, if we sacrifice conviction for convenience, we'll never know the joy of the Lord. You see, the thing is that Jesus does want us to be happy, but he doesn't want us to be happy via the road of compromise, but of the cross. The road of the cross. I want you to write down a verse. It's Psalm 84, verse 11. Psalm 84, verse 11. Actually, let's read this together. So keep a finger in Revelation chapter 2 and go to Psalm 84. Psalm is in the the middle of your Bible. Psalm 84, verse 11. This is something that many of us grapple with. Well, doesn't God want me to be able to enjoy life? But uh, how can I do that? You know, it just doesn't seem convenient. It's not the way of ease. God doesn't want to hold this back from me. In Psalm 84, verse 11, I want you to hang on to this promise. When you're there, say amen. Amen. Okay, Psalm 84, verse 11. The Bible says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Praise God, amen. Now notice this last part, because here's a promise, but it comes with a condition. 
It says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I want you to know this today. According to this verse, does God ever want to hold any good thing from us? No. Amen. (laughs) We know this from the very beginning of, of the Garden of Eden, that this has always been Satan's temptation. From the very beginning, he wanted to tempt Eve to think that God was holding something back from her, that God was withholding something of her best interest. But in reality, God's word, though it might appear to be restricting, it is actually a word of liberty. The promise is, no good thing will he withhold. But the condition is, from those who walk uprightly. In other words, God wants us to be happy, but not on the road of compromise. God wants us to be happy on the road of commitment and consecration to him. From those who walk uprightly. Are we together this morning, yes or no? Yeah? So let's go back, let's go back, because in Revelation 2, when he makes this call to repent, he doesn't just leave it at that and say, you must repent or else. He actually gives some powerful promises, and this will lead us into our communion service today. So we're back in Revelation 2, verse 17. If you're there, say amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and specifically in this message, overcoming means repenting from compromise, turning away from compromise, and instead walking the road of holding fast to Jesus with both hands. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. What? What is hidden manna? (laughs) Where would it be hiding anyway, right? Okay, okay, so you remember the story, manna given to the children of Israel every day except for Sabbath for 40 years, wow. And there was a specific instruction given to Moses, said, hey, I want you to fill up a pot of manna, and I want you to put it where? In the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the sanctuary, and that Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of a heavenly reality of whose throne? God's throne, not on an earthly temple, but where? In heaven. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So could it be that the hidden manna is really an invitation to say, hey, when you overcome, you can RSVP at that heavenly banquet (laughs) where I will give you bread from heaven. Wow. To him who overcomes and repents from their compromising ways, to him who overcomes, you may not feel like you get rewarded here in this life, but I tell you what, there's hidden manna waiting way beyond the blue. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And, there's another promise, and I will give him a white stone. Now, interestingly, commentaries on this are, uh, they kind of leave the options open. Because white stones were given in different circumstances and in different arenas. One circumstance was in a judgment scene, which might fit for this context. Uh, the judge would give a white stone to someone that was being proclaimed innocent. Another time that white stones were given was almost like a trophy of sorts, like uh, at the end of some athletic games where a victory was won, the white stone was given to the winning team or the winning athlete. And so this white stone, whether it be one of innocence and acquittal or one of victory, this white stone will be given to anyone who overcomes compromise. 
It says, I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name. And oftentimes throughout scripture, a name is really uh, indicative of one's character. And so God is saying, look, I'm going to give you a stone of victory. I'm going to give you a stone of innocence. And it's going to have on it a name that is new, brand new, a character that is spotless. And it says, a name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. Except that when we get to heaven, could it be that God, who has seen our road, who knows our very steps, who who holds our breath in his hands, could it be that when we get to heaven, he's going to see every hill you've climbed and every valley you've trudged. And he's going to say, no, you walked the road of consecration and not compromise. You walked the road of conviction and of the cross. And I'm going to give you a stone of victory and it's going to have a name that so encapsulates your journey that only you and I know it between each other. Wow. I I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven, but I wonder if this gives us a clue that when Jesus wants to spend time with us, he'll call out a name that nobody knows. Who is that? But you will. And when you hear your name, oh, it's time to hang out with my maker. There's a new name that Jesus wants to give us, and that character is being built day by day in every decision that we make. And every time we choose not to walk the road of compromise, but the road of conviction, that name is being forged in that white stone of victory. Wow. Could it be that this is the the victory and character that Jesus wants us to have? So what's the connection? Why bring this message on a communion Sabbath? (laughs) When I think of communion and that those last few hours of Jesus' life on earth, I realize that when Jesus gathered his disciples at that last supper in the upper room, He looked around that table, 12 different individuals with 12 different stories, and he looked around the room and he saw what they were going to be doing later on that evening. He looked around that room and knew his own destiny, that he was going to be tried before Pilate and Herod and Pilate again. He knew that he was going to be taken by a mob, and he knew that his disciples would be walking the road of compromise in one form or fashion. Some more notably than others, obviously. He knew that Judas would have betrayed him. He knew that Peter would deny him three times over. And he knew that when these sheep saw their shepherd struck, they would scatter. He knew that each one of them would compromise in some form or fashion, and yet, guess what? He still took the bowl around and washed all their feet. He still broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to each and every one of them. Why? Because he was inviting them to communion rather than compromise. He was inviting them to experience communion, part with him, to be one with him, even even if he knew that they were going to walk the road of compromise. Friends, today, we have the privilege of doing something that maybe some of us have never done before. Maybe some of us have done this before, and maybe every time that we've done this, we've felt uncomfortable, and and maybe you have even thought to yourself, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to eat of the bread and of the juice. Friends, it's not about being worthy. 
It's about Jesus being worthy. You may have walked the road of compromise even this very morning, this week. You feel as though you have no connection with heaven. Well, friends, Jesus doesn't want to leave you there. He wants you to repent so that you can eat not just hidden manna someday, but even the bread today as a foretaste of that hidden manna way beyond the blue. Friends, I don't know where this lands with you and what kind of compromise that you have experienced. You've known what the commandment says and yet you've compromised an inch and you feel like you've drifted because of that inch. (laughs) Friends, Jesus wants to bring you back into communion with him today. Maybe as you're even anticipating this whole foot washing and communion thing, you're you're not quite sure what to expect. What we'll simply do is we're just going to part ways after we pray. Uh, If you're here and you would like to celebrate the foot washing part just with another sister, if you're a a lady and you would like to celebrate that with with fellow sisters, uh, Bellamin Hall is where the foot washing is set up for you. If you're a brother and would like to celebrate foot washing with another man, just partner up, or maybe there's three of you. Maybe you don't even know. Maybe you came here by yourself, and you're not sure who to partner up with. Hey, go to these rooms, because there are others who aren't sure who to partner up with either, okay? And it'll be a chance to just build bonds, because this is what it is. It's communion, becoming community, first with Jesus and also with each other. And so the ladies will go to Bellamin Hall. Men, we're actually going to do something a little bit differently. We've used the kindergarten room in the past. Men, we're going to actually use the committee room right here, to my left, your right. So just, just beyond the organ right here. If you are a married couple, or maybe you want to do this with your family, then we're inviting you to go to the kindergarten Sabbath school classroom. Just follow this breezeway right down here, and uh, you'll see the glass door there. It says Cradle Roll Kindergarten. But that's where the families and couples will go, okay? But all of this is just to say that Jesus is inviting us to overcome compromise today and experience communion with him. I want to make a very simple appeal. If it is your desire, if it is your desire to forsake compromise, and you know what that compromise has looked like in your shoes, if it is your desire to forsake compromise, then I would appeal to you to let the foot washing and the eating of the bread and drinking of the juice be a demonstration of your commitment to forsake compromise and embrace communion with Jesus. Is that a simple appeal? If you want to forsake that road of compromise and say, no, 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 I want to stand upon conviction. I want to stand upon consecration. I want to not just hold fast with one hand. I want to hold fast with two hands. I don't want to hold back loyalty from Jesus. If that's your desire, then let that desire be demonstrated as you engage in foot washing. Let let that water uh, pass over your feet as though it's washing the paths of compromise that you've walked. When you eat that bread today, let it be known that uh, as you're uh, chewing on that, that you're, you're embracing the broken body of Jesus that paid the debt for your compromise. As you drink the juice, let it have a cleansing effect in your life. Friends, this is a, a, this is a great opportunity. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, now is the day of salvation. <laughs> if you have walked the road of compromise, friends, Jesus is inviting you. Walk the road of communion with Jesus. All right.
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together. And just with a sense of joyful reverence, let's quietly go to our different rooms. Brothers, over here to the committee room. Sisters, to Bellamin Hall. Couples and families, you can go over to the kindergarten classroom, okay? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Oh God, we thank you that in all things, your mercy abounds to us. And that appeal in Isaiah 55 rings true. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous his thoughts. God, you will abundantly pardon. Oh Lord, today we are honest with the roads of compromise that we have walked. And we ask, Father, that you would strengthen our conviction and strengthen our commitment to letting you be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we need the sharp, double-edged sword to sanctify us, to sever our connections with those things that we have let drag us down. We pray that as we engage in the, the foot-washing service and the communion, Last Supper reenactment, Lord, I, I pray that you would truly draw us into communion with you, that we would no longer hold back complete loyalty to you, that our hearts would no longer be divided, but they would be united, single, with an eye single to your glory. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right. At this time, let's go ahead and part. And then when we come back, we'll sit every other row for ease of serving the, the bread and the juice.